Welcome to the Explore Words, Discover Worlds podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. This expert-led panel discussion delves into the world of crime-solving beyond the pages of your favourite books and TV shows. Find out how to solve a crime with world-leading, frontline forensic professor Angela Gallup, the author of How to Solve a Crime, stories from the cutting edge of forensics, and Neve Nick Dayard, director of the award-winning Leverhulme Research Centre for Forensic Science. Chaired by Akil Ahmed, this discussion explores the importance of impartial evidence in the delivery of justice and conviction of the guilty. Recorded live at the 2022 Bradford Literature Festival, this discussion takes us behind the scenes of some of the most fascinating forensic cases. everybody and a very very warm welcome to this uh, Bradford Literature Festival event um, but please do put your hands together and give a very very warm welcome to Akil Ahmed. Right. Well uh, welcome to the Bradford Literature Festival. This is going to be a fantastic event uh, about how to solve a crime. Um, most of us as we say we most of us know about crime solving and etc from our obsession with crime dramas on television, not just, and obviously with books as well, but, but the, the TV aspect to crime as is obsessed at people. I can tell you that I've been, a, I was the head of religion and ethics for the BBC, and I've been a commissioning editor at Channel 4. So in my 30-year TV career, I have, in the last 15, 20 of them, I've been at the sat at the top table, and TV, crime, that's where all the money goes, yeah? And I was also once a crime producer for BBC News for three years, but nothing as, as interesting as this. So, what I'm going to do now is introduce our guests. I'm going to have a good conversation about what, what, how to solve a crime, what that means. Obviously, have a conversation about a lot of people take the knowledge of, of crime and, what, and how people are caught and how you find things out, etc., from TV and from books. But, but obviously, there's more to it than that, we'd hope. And there's also much, not just there's more to it, there's also all sorts of different areas where we can go. Now, to help us do that, we have Professor Angela Gallup here. Who is the author of How to Solve a Crime? How to Solve Crime Stories from the Cutting Edge of Forensics, and oh. I'm going to say it. And she's joined by Neve Nick Dade. Brilliant. There you go. Neve uh, is a director of the award-winning Leverhulme Research Centre for Forensic Science. Now, I'm going to start off with by going to Neve and saying, tell us a little bit about what is the Leverhulme Centre for Forensic Science. Um, thank you. And um, firstly, can I um, thank um, our hosts for uh, inviting me here. It's a real pleasure um, to be with you. It's a bit of a torturous journey getting down here, but sorry about that, um, with cancelled trains, etc. but I'm really pleased to be here. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about the Leverhulme Research Centre for Forensic Science. Um, it's a centre that is funded by a charitable trust called the Leverhulme Trust, which some of you might have heard of. Um, it's a 10-year research centre and it's funded to the tune of 10 million pounds, which sounds like a huge amount of money. And actually for forensic science it is. And one of the things I think we'll probably touch on uh, this evening is that forensic science has a set of scientific tools and disciplines that are used in one of the most important jobs, the service of justice. The research funding for it supplied through the normal traditional means is very, very uh, small, very paltry. Um, and suffice to say that the, the grant that we won uh, to set up the Leverhulme Centre 
um, was the biggest grant ever awarded to an academic institution in the history of this country. So that gives you a bit of a feeling for £10 million in research terms is not a huge amount of money. It sounds massive, it is massive, it's great, but it's something that illustrates that there's a real issue about funding some of the science that we use to deliver um, the service of justice. Now we know what they are. Now, Angela, obviously you have a long, distinguished career and the book itself as well. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what the book's about? Well, um, it's about not so much my area of expertise, which mm. is um, forensic biology, so that's about body fluid staining and textile fibres and things like that. Um, but it's looking broad, more broadly, I, mean, I did all that in, the, in my autobiography, mm. but it's looking more broadly across forensic science and looking at all the different, or not all, but some of the different other types of expertise. Because, because forensic science can involve any type of trace, I mean, obviously, crime can be committed anywhere. It can be inside, it can be outside, you know, and, you know, absolutely anywhere. And so, you know, depending on where it's been committed, you might get different sorts of traces being transferred between uh, the people involved. And so, in order to cope with this, we need a very wide spectrum of scientists trained in different areas of expertise. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted just to give a little flavour of that. Um, and I suppose it's also, it's like the first book, it's really trying to get over what forensic science is really like, because we all know the sort of stuff you see on telly, which is very entertaining. And um, in another forum, I might be quite rude about it, but actually, it's very... Well, you can be. It's very entertaining, and, you know, there's absolutely a place for that. We all need to, you know, in, enjoy things and well, get through life Well, should we start there, Should we start there, Evangela? What is it you don't <laughs> like about it? Well, it's just nothing to do with real forensic science, <laughs> which I think is much more interesting right. than, I don't even even agree, but, you know, than what you see on the telly. You have these amazing people, no, no names being mentioned, but who do about seven or eight jobs yeah. at once, at the same time. And they can be police, they can be family, they can be medical, they can be scenes of crime, they could be all, you know, the whole range of... of jobs that are required at the beginning of investigating a really uh, complex crime. Um, and so it is completely, uh, so you've got that on the one hand, some omni-brilliant person, and then you've got the fact that it all happens very, very quickly. I mean, so one, this is silent witness we're probably yeah, talking about. Well, you know, yeah. far be it from me, but, yeah. <laughs> but one minute we're at the crime scene imagining things, the next minute we're in the lab, and actually the evidence, you know, the very yeah. same day, the evidence is coming up on a wonderful screen yeah. somewhere, and that is the evidence that's going to go to court. Well, that is not how it works, and all cases would be thrown out if they were worked in that way um, by the time it got to court. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about what it's really like, and about the science, absolutely, but about some other things, like sort of you know worrying verdicts and and mm. unsolved cases and uh, you know what happens in court what that feels like and so i've yeah. sort of mixed it up a bit with some you know human stuff and and you know how you you know how you go about the job mm. and neve just i mean obviously you know some of them I, I can understand that even as somebody who knows nothing about the subject matter you watch silent witness and say yeah okay <laughs> it's obviously clearly N Nikki and all these people are better at solving crimes than the police, you know. Well, why do we need the police? Um, <laughs> are, there any, are there any that are actually good? Um, and why? Well, to, to, to go back, and, and I, I agree with everything Angela has said, and, mm. you know, these programmes are for your entertainment, and they do a good mm. job. They, they entertain you for that <laughs> 45 minutes, or not, mm. if you don't like them. 
Um, but one of the things I think that they, they don't demonstrate um, terribly well is that forensic science and forensic scientists is about teamwork. It's about working Absolutely, as part yeah. of an interdisciplinary team whose job mm -hmm. it is to, to fact find and to deliver information to you, the public, who sit in our juries, so that you can make a decision about the guilt or innocence of an individual. That's what our job is. But no, no one person has all the answers, and so we have to understand how to communicate with each other across our own interdisciplinary boundaries. How do we talk to biologists? I'm a chemist by training and a fire investigator. So how do we talk about our um, particular areas of expertise and what we need to do in a scene to get our part done and how we interact with the biologists mm. if there's a, a fatality, for example, what sequence of events are we going to do things in so that we maximize the opportunity of recovering evidence. And so aspects like that, and then how do we interact with the Crown Prosecution Service or the Crown Office Procurator Fiscal Service up where I come from in Scotland, how do we work with, with our legal colleagues, how do we work with our colleagues in law enforcement and our specialists? So it's all about communication and teamwork. And, and without that, we, we, we really um, aren't going to, I think, deliver a good outcome. Um, you asked me, are, are there some TV programmes that um, I think are, are better than others? Um, and it leads me to, I got dragged into doing one of these, um, I was going to say wretched TV programmes, I shouldn't <laughs> say that out loud, um, but oh. doing one of these TV programmes with somebody who I'm sure very, very many of you will be familiar with, and that's the writer Val McDermott. So she persuaded me, against my better judgement, um, to be a consultant on a programme called Traces. And it's based loosely, very, very loosely, around some of the work we do in Dundee. But the, the reason we said we would do it uh, was that we had an agreement with her that we would portray the science correctly. And that is that it is meticulous, it is slow-paced sometimes, most of the time, and it needs to be checked and double-checked. And then you, you, you derive and evolve conclusions from what you do. So it isn't the fast pace that you see on some of the other... Programs. But what was nice about it was that the science became a character, um, or at least some people described it like that. So, um, so the way in which the science evolved also became part of the story. Well, that's why it best works when actually someone listens to the advice that they've actually been given. Um, <laughs> well, so far, <laughs> yeah. just saying. So, Angela, if, 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 so how does it really work then? Or is that just is that just too open ended a question? It's a very big question. Yeah, <laughs> it is. What, what, well, I think in, it in depends. The, uh, in, aver mean, in, aver in average it, kind of cases. Well, how it, would it just work? Uh, uh, there are different sorts of cases, yeah. and some of them. I mean, obviously, the police have a finite budget, and they're, mm. they're the ones who pay for most of the primary forensic science. And so, you know, some of the cases, I mean, I, I feel bad saying this because, you know, if you've been burgled, for example, it can be pretty life-destroying, particularly mm. at the time. So any case, you know, might be viewed yeah. as fairly small in policing terms, but actually can be terrible. <clears throat> but then there are the much more complicated ones, the, you know, murders and uh, rapes and things, which require um, and which get slightly more funding. And so it just depends what you're talking about. I think anything with a crime scene that needs looking at, it very much starts at the crime scene. Mm. And I've always been very keen on this. And even if you're reinvesting a case, years, investigating a case years later, it's really important to go back to the crime scene, even though it looks a bit different and it can have been repainted mm. and God knows what else. But if you go back with the crime scene photographs taken at the time, it helps you kind of put yourself back in that moment in time, just when the crime had been committed. 
And so that is absolutely the starting point. And then if you get... Um, if you get tied in a bit of a knot and you come up with something really unexpected, which I certainly have in my career, and have faced huge criticism from police and lawyers and things like that, it helps you. That knowledge of the crime scene helps you make sense of it. Can you tell us any of those? Yes, of absolutely. Yeah. In the Pembrokeshire um, murders, Gwenda and Peter Dixon, mm. um, we were doing terribly well eventually. I mean, we had a bit of a bust up with the police to begin with. But we got over that um, because they were because they were underfunded. It's a small force, Dipid Powers, and they were underfunded, and all they wanted to do was DNA, and that's fine. You know, sometimes you get lucky with DNA, you know, straight away. But sometimes you don't, and you have to look for something else <coughs> first, and it's something else to find the DNA that you're actually looking for. And this case was a really good um, example of that, as was um, the Stephen Lawrence case. Anyway, so we were going ahead beautifully. We had lots of textile fibre evidence. That's what mm. opened it up. You know, these tiny, tiny um, f f uh, uh, fragments mm. of strands of fibres, not strands themselves, but tiny microscopic fragments. And we had lots of evidence connecting the two deceased with um, this particular suspect that they had, John Cooper, um, with his clothing and with... Um, clothing he'd abandoned in hedgerows and that sort of thing. So we had a lot of evidence, and through that we found a blood spot on his shorts that matched um, Peter Dixon, which was amazing. Mm. And uh, so it was all going well, and everybody was very pleased with the work we'd been doing. And then we decided just to have another look at these shorts, because in the photo fit picture, it seemed likely that whoever had done it was wearing shorts like these khaki shorts. Um, and there were there were sort of um, eyewitness reports and I think even a photograph of this chap or a photo fit of him at a cash point when he was using their card immediately after the murder to get cash out of the machine. Um, and we noticed that the, sh the shorts that whoever it was was wearing were slightly longer than the pair that we had. And so we wondered if they'd been turned up. So we had a look at that and it seemed that they had been turned up since being manufactured. And inside mm. the hem, we found a tiny amount of body fluid, which seems to have come from the victim's daughter. And of course, you know, it's not immediately obvious how that could have happened. And I know that the police and particularly the lawyers were telling us that our findings were completely preposterous <laughs> and we needed to go away and think about it and do it all again and all the rest of it. So we got in a specialist statistician mm. to help us with it. He made the evidence even stronger, that connection with Julie Dixon even stronger. Uh, um, and uh, we also went back again to the crime scene and had a look at what, what was found there. And we realised something that we'd always known but never had to use in any way, but we realised that the Dixon's rucksack, they were out on a walk, <coughs> their rucksack had had spare clothing in it and it had been spread all over the ground. And, uh, and what seems a very likely explanation, it was certainly one that the court accepted, was that because there were five shots fired, three in Peter Dixon, two in Gwenda, um, at close range, and then their bodies manhandled to hide them, that whoever had done it would have blood on themselves and on their clothing. So it seemed very likely that he just swapped his shorts, that were presumably and obviously, almost obviously bloodstained, with a pair of theirs. Mm. Um, and then at some point later, his wife, who was a seamstress, she turned the hems up and so locked that body fluid in into the hem. 
So that was an example of where people were not very happy with what you'd be doing, but eventually it gave us even stronger evidence. There's always an explanation. It's what I love about science. You've just got to find it. Um, you know, what, happens, what happens when, when there is that kind of conflict? Well, you, you have to you have go to away and yeah. think about it and come up with some sort of plausible explanation yeah. for why it might be right, you know, what, how it might be explained. Obviously, you don't have to get too fantastical or anything. I mean, that mm. would be rubbish. But, you know, if there's a, you know, quite a likely explanation, then, then that's what you have to do. And, of course, so. not, all, not always is it correct. We find out later on sometimes that there's been a problem or there's been um, an issue with... Or is that more to do with the policing than the forensics? No, it could be anything. Yeah. And it's something that Neve and I are worrying about constantly mm. with the way that things are going and the funding for forensic science and the fact that increasingly... Do you want me to go into this now? Yes, OK. Yeah. <laughs> but is, it, is it a case of what you think that the, cost, the costs are escalating? Well, the costs <laughs> are going up, but actually the money that's being spent well, is... Well, it's, it's, I think it's, it's, a, it's slightly more complicated than that. Mm. And... and um, one of the things, so, so I live and work in, in Scotland, in Dundee, and in Scotland we have, and Northern Ireland, we have a very different way of delivering forensic science. The science isn't different, necessarily, but the way in which it's organised. So we have one forensic science laboratory that's government-funded in Scotland, um, and the same, broadly speaking, is what happens in England, sorry, in, in Northern Ireland. And what that means is that you have a dialogue and a conversation with, in Scotland, the person who's in charge of the prosecution is the procurator fiscal, who's a lawyer. So it's very different from down here with a separate judicial uh, system up there. Um, and so you enter a conversation as a forensic practitioner with law enforcement, so with police investigators, the senior investigating officers, crime scene managers, and so on, and the forensic specialists, whomsoever they might be for the particular case. And you sit down and you have a discussion about what, um, given going to the crime scene first, what you might be dealing with and what's the best avenue of approach uh, with the different ologists and specialists and who's going to do what first and you set up a strategic plan and off you go. Um, but it's not, while there is a financial control, it's not financially managed in that sense. So we don't count how much a DNA sample is going to cost us and make a decision, do we do it or do we not? There's a much more holistic way of, of thinking about things. Whereas in England and Wales, and you know the, the system down here much better than I do, um, the forensic science provisions, so the people that are, are where the forensic scientists come from, the, the companies, are all commercial companies. So they're, they're not funded by government. And that means that you have to have a conversation with your stakeholders, the law enforcement in many cases, because it's their budget that they're spending. And it doesn't become so much of a, actually, what's the right approach to take? It's what's the value I'm going to get for the money mm. I'm going to spend? And that might be a bit harsh, and please correct me if I'm wrong. It's slightly harsh, it but it's got an element harsh. of... Yeah. yeah, but I mean, when we, I, I think the, the problem and, and when we, the point at which we switched over in England and Wales into um, this uh, mechanism of funding was when the government, it was in the 70s and 80s, and they built all these new forensic labs, and still there was masses of work pouring into the laboratories, and we simply got completely drowned. And so they had to do something about controlling it. Mm. And so they decided to devolve what had historically been central funding, central budgets, to police forces, and that's when it all started. So that's when we had a forensic science service. It had nothing to do with, com uh, with the uh, commercial side of it, but it's obviously still 
you know, going now. The only thing I would say about um, commercial forensic science, and I've seen it with my own eyes, as it were, is that it's quite good, I think, to have competition between, because each supplier, forensic science supplier, and there aren't very many of them, there are probably three main ones in the whole of England and Wales, um, but they, um, they compete with one another, they all have their own professional personalities, they all approach things in a slightly different way. Some forces like some approaches better than others, and so they will obviously use them more. To be well, to be what's in, dangerous? In what's dangerous yeah. about it is that, obviously, if you're so pressured with your yeah. budget all the time, you're thinking about: Are we going to look at that, or are we not? Are we going to? So all the time you're thinking about that, and obviously, the fewer things you look at, the less you're going to find, mm. and the more difficulty you're going to have interpreting it, and so you can get it wrong, and you know, and and then add add on top of that these things that even I just brushed on a minute ago, but the, um, the whole business about these streamlined forensic reports that mm. we're required to produce in a lot of cases these days, which are basically summaries, sometimes not even by a scientist, sometimes it's by a police officer. And when you do that, so you've got a very, very brief idea of, of what's been done, what's been found, and mm. what it means, that adds another level of uncertainty and difficulty to it. So it is not right, but I wouldn't like to lose everything that we have. I mm. like the competition, but we just have to what fund it better. Is that what it is? It's the funding. Well, how, yeah, does, it work? So. how does it work then? Because obviously the police, if the police have come to you with the, you're investigating mm. a case, they go to you know, the equivalent of the Lyle Centre or whatever <laughs> in Silent Witness, right? Exactly. It's the only one I, I, only one I can remember, I'm afraid. It's the only one I can remember because I worked on it many, many moons ago. Um, not in a science bit. The religion <laughs> bit. Um, but, um, so the police will go and they'll choose, this, they'll choose which one they want to work with or they may go to the, the, the one that's nearest to them. Well, or they whatever. may have contracted to somebody, yeah. you know, for a... Um, do they yeah. decide how much they want to spend or, yeah, or is it an open-ended they, bill? They, they, no, well, it, it's, it's, it's always open-ended to a certain yeah. extent. So if you look like you're getting somewhere, then they're hardly going to stop the funding in the middle of all that yeah. um, if it, you know, looks sensible. Um, but it is, you know, it is very much about them telling us what, we're, what we've got to do, and they can be quite specific about it. Yeah, yeah, about and the it. dreadful thing is um, now, and I don't know how it works in Scotland and Northern Ireland, but we have these menus that the police choose from. Really? So, you know, I'll have six DNAs and, and two footwear marks or something. Yeah, we, we, and, we don't do that. And that is, not, that is not the way to do anything half complex. It might be fine for simple cases, it might be yeah. fine. You know, I, I appreciate that, you know, the world does not revolve around forensic science much as I would like it to. I know that that's true. Um, we probably all like, uh, this, everybody in this room right now would probably like it to when, you, when there's an investigation going on. Yeah, and especially yeah. when it involves your family yeah, or yeah. you or something. Well, I, I think there are two bits of that that, that you, you talk about in the book that are, that are very relevant. One is when you, you describe about blood patterns. And you, and, you, and you talk, so it, mm -hmm. one of the things that, that does happen um, is that if uh, a, a police force has got company number one that does its blood pattern analysis yeah. and company number two that does its DNA, then what the police officer might do, or somebody makes a decision to take, to cut out mm. part of the blood stain and give it to the DNA person. And actually the thing that's really oh important, dear. the thing that's really mm. important is being able to put that DNA profile in context of the mm. staining on the, on yeah. the, on the garment, mm. because you learn so mm. much from the overall pattern of the bloodstain. And c disconnecting them is problematic because it disconnects that 
you have two people then working in silos. So mm. Part of what we do up in Dundee is break down silos. That's one of the major yeah. as, uh, uh, um, aspects of the work that we do. And so, so it 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 it, it doesn't devalue it, but it 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 makes it more difficult. I think to finally sort of bring the case well, it together. Well, it means no one person has yeah. got the total picture because DNA. Everybody goes on about DNA. It's incredibly important and hugely. <coughs> Um, uh, you know, beneficial to forensic, just it's transformed forensic science. But it's only half of the coin. The, yeah. other, the other side of it is absolutely, as Neve said, it's blood patterns or other patterns, patterns of other body fluids, because, you know, DNA will tell you from whom the blood or other body fluid could or could not have come. Pattern analysis will tell you how it got there. So what sorts of activity would have given rise to it? And at a crime scene, you can often see all sorts of elements of a blood pattern and work out a rough sequence of events, which is really important, which Silent Witness could do a bit more of, I think. But <laughs> really, I was going to ask you about that, because you do, mm. when you watch a lot, of the, a lot of the dramas, they do have the bit where they go, oh, this is where we think this happened, and you look at the blood spatter. I mean, it seems fairly obvious what they're saying, but is it, is it way off reality? It's just much more simple than yeah. it normally, yeah. than really. it normally is, and, and they get much less out of it than you can... Um, and of course, that's really important because if you understand, you know, like for example, if you're looking at a case where you suspect that the offender might have cut themselves yeah. a, a case with a knife, and I can think of lots of examples, mm. um, and you suspect that the offender might have left some, might have cut their own hand because blood's very slippery, and you know, you can the, the cutting edge of the blade, the knife can slide down onto this part of the hand, mm -hmm. and then you've got the offender blood being spattered about yeah. at the mm. at the scene. And one of the things about blood patterns is it, it helps you identify which particular... So it actually saves money by helping you decide which particular blood stain you'll go for, because it, it could be an offender course, yeah. stain rather than a victim stain. Wow. So. Now... It, I remember being in Bosnia, um, and they were obviously using forensic technique actually to see the bones of, you know, when they were looking for the, um, uh, the mass burials in Srebrenica and places mm -hmm. like this. So they would be finding... Um, oh, the problem with that part of the world was there were First World War bodies, there were Ottoman War bodies, there were Second World War bodies, there were re revolutionary... There was all sorts, and they had to discover what they were. And this, they were using the kind of forensic techniques that had been used in, at post in the 9-11 to obviously mm. dictate who, which, which bones belong to which particular people. I mean, this is obviously quite a... It's, not, it's, a, it's, not a, it's an old thing now. It's, been, it's, it's mm. been 20 or so years since that kind of work came in. And what are the kind of groundbreaking bits of work that are happening at the moment that you think are real, real game-changers? Well, it's happening across a broad front, yeah. and some of it in um, Neve Centre. Mm. But I think in terms of... I mean, in, in DNA, it's just so different... Mm. from 1986 or 1985 when it all started. It's so different. And we then, you needed... It was brilliant because it gave you some big statistics. You yeah. know, and it gave you strong links. But then you needed a, a blood stain about the size of a 10p piece. And now you don't even need to be able to see mm. a blood stain. You know, you might get a, a chemical reaction, but you don't need to be able to see it to get a, a full profile. And that gives extra challenges, of course, because then you've got to work out if it's actually relevant <laughs> to what you're looking at. Yeah. So, you know, as you get um, improvements and um, advances, so you get other things to think about, and other what challenges. what are the groundbreaking things that you're across? Um, I, I think, I mean, I, I, would, I would entirely echo that. DNA revolutionised forensic science yeah. in, in the 1980s, 1986. Mm. And it was a, real, uh, a really positive, disruptive influence on um, forensic science. It, it, it started here in the UK. 
Um, but there is the law of unintended consequences and, and the technological developments related to DNA meant that we could determine it from a single cell, um, which is mm. slightly mind-blowing. But it means that when we go and collect DNA, we collect multiple people's DNA. So now our problem is not getting mm. DNA, it's unmixing DNA mm. so that we can understand, is it mine, is it yours, is mm. it, you know, who's, who's the contributors to the mixture? Which becomes actually a mathematical problem. Mm. Um, mm. And the mathematics can't unmix, sometimes they can for some profiles, but for really complicated ones, it becomes really difficult. And that causes a challenge, not so much in the technology, in the getting of the DNA and the analyzing it, but it causes a challenge when um, we then have to speak about it in the courts. And part of what we're doing is doing that whole crime scene to courtroom uh, piece. So I work, um, or my center works very closely with the senior judges across the UK and um, in Scotland and elsewhere in the world, working with them to create ways whereby we can explain the science in simple terms mm. so that the judge can then charge the jury, you folks, mm. um, so that you can understand what it is that you're being asked to do and how to unmix some of these mm. complications. Um, other areas where there are, 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 we're breaking new ground, I think, is, is looking at what's next for DNA. So where do we go next? What else can we do? Um, we know that um, in the world we can sequence the entire genome. You've probably heard that before. And it's, was, it was used to revolutionize life sciences, to create personal medicines for, for all of us to benefit of our health. But we don't use whole genomic sequencing in forensic science. So what would happen if we did? And what information would it give us? And would it be beneficial or would there be unintended consequences that would cause us even more trouble uh, in terms of trying to use it in casework? Um, I think there are other areas. One of the areas we focus on a lot is trying to, there's two I'll, I'll describe very briefly. One is trying to get into the, the very nitty gritty of what we understand by uh, two concepts called transfer and persistence. And they're really important concepts for any kind of trace evidence you can think of, whether it's DNA, whether it's fibers, glass, paint, anything at all like that. And what they're about is that if you come into contact, you, a person, comes into contact with another person or with a surface, then what bit of you is transferred? Is it part of your skin cells, some of the fibers and the clothes that you're wearing? And if it gets transferred, how long does it last for? So what's that transfer rate? What's the persistence and what are the circumstances? where trace evidence persists, as, as Angela was talking mm. about, finding fibers. How do we know how long they've been there for? Because that's important mm. in using them then to, to, term, to, to, to work out the story of what might have happened. Because that's in part what, what we're using our science to do, is to reconstruct an alleged event that mm. might have happened in the past. So transfer and persistence of almost everything is something we don't know a huge amount about. So we need to try to figure it all out. Um, and then the other thing where we're doing some um, significant work is trying to look to see can we use tools like virtual reality in, um, in, a, in a, a very um, sensible way and a careful way within crime scene investigation. Mm. Because it's a fantastically powerful tool, but if we use it in a haphazard way, then it's going to cause more so harm. So how would you good. use virtual reality then? Uh, so, that to, be, to recreate scenes or to recreate locations? Or? It, it, essentially, yes. So there's, there's, there's two ways um, to do that, that we're looking at. So one is, if we had a crime in here, God forbid, um, can we photograph, so can we take images of this scene in such a way that we understand, <laughs> then turn them into a virtual reality space, so you 
put on your little Google glasses and you can look at and walk around in it and fall over things. Well, fall over things because you think they're there and they're not. Um, I've done that. It's not funny. Um, <laughs> and so, but is it realistic enough? And what's the, what are the boundaries of that realism? How much is there a distortion because of the way it's been generated, because it's been generated by a computer? So how comfortable are we that we can make decisions based on a virtual reality representation of a set of images of a space. And that's actually really important to work out. So what we're doing is we're creating a means of imaging a space where we can precisely define the uncertainty of the resulting set of images. Why is it important? It's important because if I have a, a crime scene up in Orkney, um, it'll take me two days to send a forensic scientist up there. So I can have my um, police officer or scenes of crime person up there quicker than that, get them to image the scene in such a way that we can use virtual reality mm -hmm. to bring a team from literally anywhere in the world into that space, because you just give them a web address to go to, and they can contact the person on the ground and give advice mm -hmm. almost immediately, within a couple of hours. So that's the power of it. But the, on the other side is if you get it wrong and you distort the image, so what you see is not quite what you need to see in order to make decisions, then you can send a, uh, an investigation in entirely the wrong direction. So, so getting it right and doing the research work to enable it to be done correctly, rather than rush in with the latest technology and just take a few pictures and say, there you go, or gamify it, even worse. Mm. Um, so it needs to be done. It's like implementing any mm. technology within mm. the forensic science space, and we were talking about that a little bit as well just before um, we started. And um, there's lots of technology out there. It's amazing, it's whizzy, it's fantastic. It makes our lives a, a lot easier. But if we want to use it in the service mm. of justice, we have to make sure that it's fit for our purpose, which is that judicial purpose. And it has to uh, um, hit some checks and balances that make sure that we're comfortable about making decisions relating to the use of that technology. I mean, you talked about, you talked about the maths, obviously, in relationship in relation mainly to DNA in terms of sequencing, etc. But what about AI and things like this? Are they actually changing how, you know, um, is it changing how you would operate? I think in, um, you know, the cyber world, it probably is. Yeah. Um, but um, insofar as everyday forensics goes, it's, it's not, not so much at the yeah. moment. No, I think, think it's coming. It's yeah, coming, oh yeah, yeah, it'll definitely so, come. I mean, absolutely. And, and how is it coming? What will, what will, what will, how will AI work um, in, in everyday forensics as opposed to the kind of, you know, the com computer-based? I think, I think the way that, it depends on what you mean by AI. Mm. Uh, throw yeah. the question back to the question. Yeah. Uh, it depends on what you mean by AI. What do you mean by AI? <laughs> well, uh, artificial <laughs> intelligence. No, but basically the ability for, for a, a machinery, as it were, to make, to make the uh, programs to actually help to get you to a particular place that you yourself would not have the ability to, to get to? That, I'm, I'm not sure we will ever yeah. go that far. Right. I think where machine learning, deep learning, mm. and artificial intelligence, if you want to describe it in that way, is, is beneficial to us. We use it a little bit already. We use it in, on mixing complicated DNA mm. profiles. We mm. use it in um, giving us candidate uh, prints to check for comparing finger marks. Um, we're looking at using it for um, other types of looking at patterns in the soles of your shoes or in other types of things. Mm. But I think there will always be a person mm. to check. I, I was, I, it end. came into my head, because when you were talking about the, um, the VR and you were talking about the room, etc., because this is when the direct room is coming out and out, so I'm thinking how it's going to work. But obviously the AI would have the worry about this, not uh, the worry about the actual layout and not working. Well, you'd, 
you'd imagine some kind of machine learning, some kind of artificial intelligence would be able to ensure that it was more, more reflective of the reality rather than and, and enable a mistake to go in. I, I think there, there, there are more methodological ways of doing it. Okay. Um, then, then I don't think, I mean, I don't know, um, Angela, what you would think about this, but I think that our courts are certainly nervous yeah. about forensic evidence being left to a machine to do the interpretation. Mm. I think it's the interpretation that is the essence of being a forensic scientist. Oh, I, th I think there are some areas where it's more obvious than others, and yeah. certainly mm. forensic accountancy yeah. is definitely one of those areas oh God, yeah. where, yeah. you know, well, we know in our everyday lives it's mm. taking over a lot of accountancy functions, so I think you can see that. But there's something at the back of all this, and I think Neve's been alluding to it a bit, um, but which is, you know, you've got to be very careful that you don't, you know, right at the start of a process or halfway through, you don't um, make too many assumptions mm. about things. And I remember in Stephen Lawrence's case, and this is going back a while, well, I mean, not that long, but anyway, mm. going back a while, and th but the original assumptions of the scientists who did the early work on it was that it was only worth looking for textile fibres, looking for transfer between the five suspects that police had almost mm. immediately and Stephen, through fibres on their clothing. But looking um, only at the clothing that the suspects was wearing, their, their fibres on Stephen, because Stephen had run a little way down the road and then collapsed, and then he'd been taken to hospital, and his clothing mm. had been taken and protected. And the thing about tracers like that is that they can drop off and be lost yeah. after they've been transferred if there's too much activity and the rest of it. So they didn't really look for fibre transfer in the other direction. And then when we came along, um, sort of several years, later, oh, several years later, um, well, 1993 it yeah. happened in, and we were doing our work in, I don't know, 2006 onwards, I think yeah. it was, they, they were convicted in yeah. 2012, but there was a bit of, you know, double jeopardy in the, <laughs> in the middle of all that. Um, but that was something that if we hadn't, the scientists hadn't been so prescriptive about what they were doing, they would have discovered the sort of stuff that we were finding. Mm. Mind you, you know, if they found the blood, that tiny spot of blood on the jacket of one of these, um, mm. one of the suspects, they wouldn't have been able to get a DNA profile <laughs> because it's much too small in those days. Yeah. Now we can, so I guess it's complicated. But it just serves to remind us that we've got to be quite careful about making too many assumptions about things and cutting off lines of inquiry. Mm. But you, you, you talk about that as well, I think, in, in, in the, the book where you talk about cold cases. Yeah. Mm. And, and there's where you really have a, an opportunity to get mm. everything that's been done before yeah. and get it all together and go, mm. right, let's take a fresh look at this Absolutely. with a fresh mind and Absolutely. just have another go. Mm. Um, mm. And, and there's, there's the kind of picking out of things mm. like that. that mm. um, that really resonate. And, mm. and, and of I mean, course, technology moves on, doesn't it, as well? well it, so. it, yes, it, absolutely. That no, that's yeah. critical. I mean, it was critical yeah. for the DNA in the Stephen Lawrence case. But what I think so interesting is, you know, everybody always says, oh, well, of course, there's new technology now, and that's why we've got that sorted out. But actually, it's two things. It's partly new technology, absolutely, but mm. it's partly new approaches. We've learned. We've, yeah. you know, we've learned over the years about what to do and what not to do. So and you learn through mistakes. Absolutely. Yeah. Are there and, any of the mistakes yep. you can tell us? Or? And... Um, well, Not I, wouldn't, I wouldn't like to well, somebody dwell else's on... Somebody else's mistake. <laughs> you know. I, don't, I don't really think it's so much mistakes. We're yeah, just, yeah. you know, learning. And, and if they had our experiences, then they yeah. might have done things slightly differently. Oh, no, I'm a firm, firm subscriber to the whole black box, black box theory of, you know, you learn from yeah. things that have gone wrong rather than, yeah. you know, 
absolutely. You know, and I think, I mean, normally, if you use the word imagination in relation mm. to a scientist, they think you're inventing things. They've invented all your results. It's extremely difficult to do. But actually, forensic scientists do need a good dose of imagination so that they can, you know, do interesting mm. things. And there was one case that we did where we thought, as I said earlier, that the offender might have left some blood at this crime scene. Mm. It was a very violent scene. Um, the place had been repainted twice in the intervening years. But by looking at the crime scene photographs, actually in the, in the room where it all happened, you could identify some of the, you know, some of the stains that might have been offender mm. blood. And then by getting the police to take off woodwork, um, because the, you know, for, for some reason, I won't go into it, but woodwork mm. seemed to be the best option. Um, but by taking that off and scraping away under a microscope at the paint, hoping that the person who originally painted it actually just painted over the blood and didn't mm. bother to clean their surfaces or whatever you're supposed to do first, you know. And actually that turned mm. out to be true. So underneath there, protected all of those years, yeah. was the offender's blood. And then, of course, we eventually worked out who it was. And it was certainly not, um, in that case, the Cardiff Three who'd been convicted and then yeah. acquitted and yeah, yeah. everybody still thought they were guilty. So, you know, mm. it was uh, interesting. But that's imagination. That you is real that. imagination. You need that. Yeah. Yep, I was going to say, so what makes you go into this field then? Because obviously, you, you, <laughs> most of you, you're either going to go into it as somebody who is a, a, a studied, <laughs> studied science parents, or medicine, I presume. Yeah? A bit of madness, I think, sometimes. Yeah. Um, for yeah. me, it was um, a kind of an interesting journey. I'll be fairly brief about it. So um, I, I'm, I come from Ireland originally, and, and both of my parents, my mother's a botanist, my father's a chemist. Um, and they got involved in fire scene investigation when mm. I was quite young um, because my dad happened to be, he worked in academia and he happened to be typical in Dublin, round the corner having a pint with his mates. And one of his mates was a police officer who was a bit stuck on a case and said, oh, you're a chemist, do you know anything about fires? And he went, well, a bit, you know. And so that, uh, <laughs> I'm going back nearly 40 years, ladies and gentlemen. It wouldn't quite happen yeah. like that now. So. So um, they got involved in doing fire scene investigation on the civil side, so not for criminal court, but for civil proceedings in Ireland. Um, and they started a business, and, and, and they were quite successful, and they were the very first um, civil-based fire investigators in, in Ireland. Mm. Um, and so my brother and I, when we were growing up, we, used to, we were taught the value of money by um, uh, being given five pence per photograph that we stuck onto sheets of paper for their reports. I am going back a long while, okay? Um, you, were cut, you were early cut and paste artists. You, you know, yeah. absolutely. Um, you know, and which way is up, you know, for, mm. for fire, fire scene mm. photographs, that's sometimes a difficult mm. question. And so what it taught us, it taught me certainly, was that science could be useful. That it wasn't just about learning something to pass an exam or, or um, something you learned in school, but it had a real tangible benefit and use that affected people's lives and it solved problems. Um, and I was really taken by that, and so uh, I decided I wanted to be a forensic scientist. Mm -hmm. um, failed miserably at that because I went off and did a, a PhD in something completely different. Um, but I eventually did get into um, um, doing forensic science work, and I'm not in the same um, uh, league or category at all as, as Angela. <laughs> I'm, I, I do, I'm an academic, and I do casework as part of that academic work. So I, I um, uh, do some... Um, uh, uh, forensic science cases when I'm asked to by the police usually or by the defence um, but it's not my main stay it's not what I do uh, on a day to day um, and the areas that I got involved in funnily enough are fire scene investigation 
um, because it kind of rubbed off. Um, but also I, I do a fair bit of work in illicit drugs and, and the, the, the manufacturing characterization of those. So, but I teach forensic science and I, I, I do a lot of research and lead now a lot of research in forensic science. And as I said, part of what I've I ultimately ended up doing is becoming, uh, um, getting involved in, the, the, you hit the nail on the head earlier, Angela, on, on around how do we make use of what we do such that it's effective. So the communication between the different groupings, whether it's scientist to police officer or scientist to lawyer or to judge or to the public, those are the pressure points. Those are the bits that we really have to work hard on so that what we say in the witness box isn't gobbledygook to you. It's something that we can, we can, make, we can enable you to understand what it is that we're saying. So I do quite a lot of that sort of stuff. What about yourself, Angela? What about you? Um, well, I was at... Um university having mm. no thought about forensic science at mm. all but I think I was just finishing my research degree and I I have been doing the biochemistry of sea slugs which is absolutely fascinating doesn't sound like it but it is yeah. um, anyway I'd been putting around with that for a while and I the one thing that got me about it was that there are only about six or seven people around the world who cared about what I've been doing. I'm glad you said and that. I, yeah. We're all thinking it, but I'm really I know glad you, you said were. it. I know yeah. you were, you know. <laughs> it's only because you don't understand how interesting they are. But anyway, so I realised then that I wanted to do something applied, an applied science. I was never going to make a, a pure mm. science, and I would never mm. have been as distinguished as Neve, at, uh, you know, as, a, as an academic um, and so I was bellyaching to my friends about that. <laughs> one day, one of them was in the same position as me, writing up his thing. Um, he came over and said, hey, Angela, there's a really interesting job here for the Forensic Science Service. It's, um, uh, what, it was in the Home Office. What do you think about that? that? That's definitely applied, and it seemed to suit you. And I thought it was a really interesting idea, and so I applied, and then I yeah. kind of stuck with it. And then I got, I was spent about 12 years with the Forensic Science Service and got a bit irritated by a whole load of things. And um, I left and set up a company that looked, because the, the, I felt that the balance of forensic science wasn't right, that the prosecution held all the cards, which was not good. And you can see this, I and my colleagues could see this when we went to court. It was quite obvious that the prosecution knew what questions to ask to get the strengths out of our, mm. our evidence, but the defense teams didn't. And I thought that wasn't fair, so I set up this organization um, to do that, to help defense legal teams, and did that for a few years, and then started to realize that actually I and my colleagues in this uh, company were um, actually tipping the balance the other way, and we were picking apart, you know, perfectly good cases where they, if they'd just done a little bit more or a little bit differently or something, it would have been fine, but because they'd left a loophole, it, mm. was, it was not good, and we were able to, um, you know, drive holes in the forensic evidence. Yeah. And that was not the point. The point was not to do that. It was to balance it up. Yeah. So then it needed rebalancing the other way. And so then I set up another company with a couple of my um, colleagues to help the police, you know, to try and do that. And that's when I got into all the cold cases because they would, you know, spend all this money. I've never borrowed so much money in my life. It was, that's the only time when I've had sleepless nights. Amazingly, not about cases, but about borrowing massive amounts of money with no visible means of support. You know, I've got a mortgage like everybody else and it was horrific. Um, but anyway, so... Um, 
in order to, and the police said, oh yes, do that, do that, we're wonderful. Um, we can, we'll use you. Yes, if you spend all this money, absolutely fine. We will use you definitely. Uh -huh. And about eight or 10 forces said that they would do that. So I felt fine. But then when it came to it, they said, oh, well, you know, it's a bit difficult, Angela. When that force uses you, then it will be okay for us to use you. We won't be criticized. And so we had to think of a way of, of getting them to trust us. And that way seemed to be cold cases. And we mm -hmm. said, look, nobody's looking at you. If we um, do some of your cold cases, you can take all the credit when we sort it out, if we sort it out, but yeah. you can take the credit. Uh, we're not interested in that. Um, and if we don't, if we don't sort it out, well, you know, nobody's expecting you. Nobody even knows you're doing anything with it, so nobody's going to criticise you, so it's really safe. And so one or two of them took us up on that, particularly on the West Coast for some reason. So we did a lot of work in Merseyside to begin with and South Wales and places like that. And then eventually we came to the attention of the Met Police and that's when we did some of the more high-profile cases that we've done. But it was all because of that, really. So it's a funny mm. old Well, I imagine thing. people will want to ask about some of those high-profile cases, etc. I mean, I could carry on asking you more questions. Actually, considering I came into this about an hour you've ago... Done you've done brilliantly, absolutely. I think it's not too bad. <laughs> but, um, so we have got uh, a roving microphone. Does anybody want to ask a question? Uh, hello. Uh, how many cases do you have per week or per month? Um, in different organisations that I've worked in, it's been different. Um, so it's very difficult to say. But I suppose a forensic biologist, well, in the days when I was doing an awful lot of casework and not these big cases, so s standard casework, I suppose I would do, um, in a year, I would probably do 100 to 120 cases, something like that, certainly no more but something like that, going back in time a bit. Mm. Um, but that would be the sort of amount I imagine it's... Well, I don't know, it might be quite the same, actually, now I think about it. Maybe it's even more, actually. I don't know now. And, of course, every discipline will have different um, numbers of cases that they do. But um, Any, Anyone else got a question? OK, thank, thank you for your talk. Very illuminating. Is there contamination of DNA an issue? Uh, and is it often claimed by the defence that yeah. the DNA has been contaminated. Do you find it a problem, in other words? I don't really find it a problem. I mean, it certainly makes you think about it, but f before you report it, you ought to be pretty confident about it, unless they come up with something, which is, happens less and less these days, because the defence has to disclose <coughs> what they're going to rely on, just like the prosecution does. Um, so, unless you get ambushed in some way or another, um, normally you will have thought about it and for example in the Stephen Lawrence case which was particularly um, difficult because it was so big and there's such a mixed history with stuff being got in and out of bags and by different people in different places and so there was the theoretical potential for um, a, a large amounts of contamination there um, but we probably did nearly as much work again on contamination as we had done on actually finding the evidence in the first place, just to make sure that we could say, well, no, it couldn't, this couldn't. I think we dissected all our evidence out, so we picked out all the strands of the evidence. And in each case, we looked at um, the possibility of trans um, transfer through contamination and then all the transfer steps that would have had to have taken place, and they came up with a conclusion at the end of it as to whether for that evidence there was any realistic possibility that it might have been contamination. So we certainly do a lot of that, thinking about that. So, so we, we were involved in, in, I think it was one of your cases, Rachel Nickell. No, oh, yeah. Um, mm. and, and we uh, were asked as a, as a completely um, uh, outside of, of, of the sort of normal um, realm of casework, 
to review the evidence there on the basis of was there contamination. And so we're going back, I think the case occurred in 1993, and I can't remember when we got the, the God, you got the conviction um, yeah. for it, but we had to trace, or our job was to, was to gather mm. all of the information and trace the, the particular um, item of evidence mm. right the way through. So could it be, could the continuity of where it went, who handled it, who did what to it, could it be traced right the way through to the modern day? And it could. They did a fabulous job uh, in, in maintaining what we call a continuity of evidence, so that every moment that that item is somewhere is known. Um, and, it, and it absolutely copper fastened the, 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 the importance of the find, mm. if you like. But I think that it's you know, really, really important to, um, to have people reviewing. That's why I quite like to be sitting between the defence and the prosecution. I find mm. it a very comfortable place. Because what you don't want to do is to present evidence which isn't safe and then be dug out of your yeah. retirement rose garden years <laughs> later, like, like my boss was. It, absolutely terrible with the Stefan Kishko yeah. case. Oh, um, that was absolutely terrible. The way, the way things worked out and the way he was treated was awful. And so I think, you yeah. know, and had well, the... Stefan was treated, you mean, or your boss? Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, no. Well, no. Uh, both. Well, both. both. Yeah. Both, I was actually. Say, his life was ruined. Yeah. As well, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And he was going to be taken to court. It was only the yeah. fact that one of the policemen died, I think, or somebody died anyway, that he wasn't taken to court. And I know that that forensic scientist was, for the time that he was operating, was as diligent as anybody mm. would have been. Um, and you know, I've, well, I've got my views on it, but. Anyway, it was it was awful. So anything that stops that happening, mm. so you know, doesn't allow somebody to be convicted in the first place, and then doesn't allow um, people to be unfairly beaten up. I mean, obviously, if they've done something wrong, then it's really <laughs> important yeah. that they are. But you know, uh, in that particular case, it was much more complex than that. Um, yeah. So you know, I would much rather know about it to begin with, sort it out then. Time of trial. So you got that? Yeah, that was. Um, Touching on the question I was going to ask you actually about, um, obviously there's been quite a few miscarriages of justice generally about police procedure, etc. But, mm -hmm. you know, lead, moving forward, you were saying that you'd set up a business that was sort of a bit more helping the police, helping the defence. And I'm just worried, you know, is there going to be a massive argument where the credibility of forensic science will be chipped away so much? Well, it's is what it, we're worrying about. Yeah, it's do you exactly have like an international doing. sort of where your opinions are verified sort of across the world or within UK? It, it's, it's a really good question. I think one of mm. the most important things to, 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 to come away with is that forensic scientists are neutral. Our job is to mm. serve the court, not to serve prosecution mm. or defence or who pays mm. the paycheck, that pays the mortgage. Mm. That's not what we're about. Mm. We're about presenting the evidence in the, in the most accurate way that we can in a way that's understandable by the triers of fact, the people who make the decisions, who are the jury. That's our job. And um, when we get into the into the, the witness box, that's something that we uh, hold very dear. That's yeah. exactly what we should be doing. Um, I think the in terms of, is, are there international fora where um, things are scrutinized? There, there are international courts um, which deal with um, uh, a lot of the international types of, of of crime, the International Criminal Court is probably the most um, significant one. And there are cases where our evidence is presented in other courts of law, um, in other jurisdictions around the world. There are 
a number of international organisations within forensic science where forensic scientists come together. Uh, like any other mm. scientist, we go to conferences and we chat with each other and so on. Mm. And we share best practice and we talk to each other about um, the challenges that we've had with the pres presentation of certain types of evidence in court. Um, and the DNA contamination one is a, is a point in case. Uh, a case in Australia, the name of which escapes me, um, was one of the first cases that showed that a, a victim of a crime, when he was taken to hospital and, and um, they were looking after him, had one of these little um, blood pressure things put on his finger. Um, and it was then taken off and it was put on somebody else's finger and there was a cross-contamination mm -hmm. event occurred as a result of that. So um, there, there are things like that that we learn through mm -hmm. com conversation with our colleagues. And the forensic science community is a very tight community and there's mm -hmm. not that many of us around when you look at the grand scheme of yes. science. So many of us know each other um, both nationally and internationally. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think there's, a, there's a real... Um, uh, push for us all to to enable the equality of arms that is enshrined in our laws to occur, and and that means you know showing that um, we can provide scientific evidence to the defence or to the prosecution from that mm. perspective uh, when we go when we when we're when we're doing our our, our day to day work. And I'm also like Angela, I, I work in the middle between mm. between the margins between the two, and it's much. But if you're the prosecution or the defence, can you go? Forensic scientists shopping, as it were, for somebody that you think will be more inclined to see things happened, your way. Would, yeah. I would yeah. say, but I think people normally know about it. Right. So you know. <laughs> so they're ready so, for it. Yeah, yeah. Then they can make comments about it. You know. Well, you know, was but, was anybody else instructed on this case beforehand? Yeah. That's. And I mean, equally, mm. the, the the people that decide that we're experts are the judiciary, not mm. us. Yeah. Um, or skilled witnesses in Scotland. Mm. So it's mm. for the judiciary to decide whether or not they will accept us as a witness when we're, when we're in, uh, you know, at that point where you're stepping into the witness box. And if, you know, the, the, the judiciary all talk to each other as well. So, you know, yeah. if, there's, if there are people that are, are perceived to, to perhaps take one slant over another uh, and not be impartial, then that's yeah. quite soon known it's about. Soon yeah. noticed, isn't yeah. it? Okay. So that, that would I mean, go some way towards answering some of those concerns, I think, as I, well, wouldn't it? Yeah. I think, too, that we work to very strict standards, quality yeah. standards, and we're constantly checking our own, checking each other's works constantly. Mm. And actually, that's been the case for a long time. But so we're doing a lot of that. So before we, we ever get anywhere about talking I about evidence, I presume there's peer reviewing of. Yeah, that absolutely. Right. And maybe absolutely that's where the structured. AI comes in as well. Because that's what a lot of AI. That's what a lot of. That's what a lot of AI has been used for now, which is actual document document checking. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes. And it's it's yeah. used a lot in the yeah. in, on the um, legal process side. Exactly. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And you know, but but one could argue that it might go too far. There's yeah. um, sessions oh, yeah. of of algorithmic justice over in in the US where right. the the algorithm defines you know, what you're going to get in your divorce And case, somebody so. has to program the algorithm as well, well and they, br they bring yeah. their own prejudices, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I think we've come to the end of the line now, actually. If it's the end of the show, we've got one more question, is that right? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. There you go. You've actually touched on it. The only um, other bit I was wondering is, if we think about uh, I don't know, other countries in Europe, France, Germany, Italy, etc., I'm just wondering in what way, you know, their approach to forensic science, relations to the judiciary, role of the police, the commercial sector, I'm just wondering if, in what way is that different to where we are here? I know it's different in Scotland, Northern Ireland and the UK. I just wonder if it's the same kind of approach or are there any significant differences? Um, I'll, I'll go first and give the yeah. whole floor to you. Um, the science is the science. 
-hmm. um, so that, that doesn't, doesn't change in terms of what the capabilities are, but the way in which it's presented in the court changes. So some mm -hmm. um, uh, systems over in other parts, particularly in, in, in Western Europe, are what are called inquisitorial. So you have an appointed court expert that will, that will um, pre present the scientific evidence, uh, often in front of magistrates and judges. Some court systems don't have juries. Uh, we have an adversarial system here where you've got um, the, each witness um, uh, being um, examined by a defence and, sorry, a prosecution and a defence um, barrister or advocate or whatever. So, uh, and the, the US have an, have an adversarial system. So it just depends on what legal system is, mm. is there, but you've got experience there, with this as well. Yeah, I mean, the horror stories, well, in the, in the UK, <laughs> absolutely, but they're also all around Europe. You know, I'm, I'm, I can think of some cases where it was awful and one particular case where in an inquisitorial environment um, where there were lots of you know they were all in an old boys club the judge and the forensic scientist actually was a pathologist and he was talking about blood patterns and getting it completely round his neck and um, and producing this dreadful evidence I mean, I think it was the, the first and probably the only time I've been clinically depressed when I've come out of a courtroom, you know, because I couldn't do anything. They couldn't, I couldn't give my evidence because they couldn't decide whether I was, you know, in, under their legal code, whether it was okay. And I, and the, there was another woman, she was head of the French um, Forensic Science Laboratory in Lyon, I think. Um, but they, anyway, they, we, we couldn't give evidence, and this was such rubbish, this chap was talking, because he had all this latitude, because he was among his mates, and I mm. thought, you know, the adversarial system is really good, you know, <laughs> at least it stops this sort of rubbish. You know, so, I mean, you know, you take your system and, you know, but take it, your choice. It, it's also two cultures clashing. Yeah. So the scientific culture and the yeah, legal culture. Yeah, that's always and, difficult. And, and that's mm. difficult to tease apart. Yeah. And it's difficult yeah. to, to, to try to shift mm. a lot of that sort of cultural mm. norm and, and thinking. It is mm. happening. It's certainly happening here. Mm. Um, and it is happening in, 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 in a number of countries. But it's a slow yeah. process. But we'll yeah. get there. Yeah. yeah well. I'm very optimistic. <laughs> yeah, well, if we don't get there, I'm sure that I'm sure the TV shows will tell us how to do it in the future. But you will all there'll be a drama. There'll be a drama yeah. somewhere that will tell us how it should be. You, but you will all understand though, what's the, what the problem is. Yeah, exactly. The yeah. real problem. <laughs> well, look, I just say thank you. I think we should round of applause for Neve and for Angela. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming tonight.